I'm uh, super excited to continue the, uh, the series that we're in uh, called The Content of Contentment. And uh, if you have that app, you can go there now to follow along with the notes. If you don't and you have a physical Bible or whatever it is that you'd like to follow along, we're going to be reading out of uh, Philippians because we're actually continuing a, a journey through Philippians. And that's what the, the series is really uh, about. And so uh, as we pursue this idea of the contents of contentment or the content of contentment, uh, I'm going to open up with a uh, reading of First. Uh, sorry, I was going to say First Philippians, that's funny. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 18 and going on through verse 26. So you can follow along with me if you'd like. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As, as, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and the joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory Christ Jesus, to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to come to this place and to have an encounter with you, the living God. And so I pray that uh, you would speak to us directly, that your spirit would lead and guide every aspect of what we encounter through this service this morning. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. So. Uh, if you've missed out on the earlier weeks, you can check out our podcast, but we're, we're kind of catching up here with uh, Paul. He's in a Roman prison, and he's really contemplating the consequences of, of that reality and coming face-to-face with the potential that it may cost him his life. And uh, I've, uh, I've had a couple people uh, that have read the same book and have recommended it to me. Uh, the book is actually, I think it's a little morbid. Uh, it's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. <laughs> and uh, it's an autobiography by Aaron Ralston. And I may have said his name improperly there. But uh, while hiking in Utah, here's a spoiler alert. So if you want to read this morbid, creepy book, uh, plug your ears. Um, because I'm going to tell you basically the gist of it if you haven't heard about him before. Uh, when he was hiking uh, or canyon dwelling, whatever the proper term is, uh, a boulder fell on his right arm and pinned it to another boulder. And so he was stuck there. Like we're talking probably thousands of pounds, but um, he's stuck there. He's pinned there. He's tried absolutely everything. And so after days of trying to get free on the sixth day, okay, he rested. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) He pulled out his pocket knife. And I'm not kidding. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it says this, because when the people that read the book used this word to describe said pocket knife, they said dull pocket knife. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it says dull pocket knife. I don't even know. I imagine like a spoon in my mind. (laughs) But with his dull pocket knife, he amputated 
his own right forearm. <laughs> Sweet glory. <laughs> what a horrifying idea. Six days, I don't know, like... Obviously, he had to be facing death, right? I mean, to levels that we simply cannot comprehend because the first time you start going, you're like, what am I doing right now? Like, you know, halfway through? Like, imagine that being halfway through. Like, I got a long way to go still. Sweet Jesus, this hurts, right? You're just screaming in the middle of nowhere. Nothing. I hope I've amply grossed you out. Uh, because right as they're telling me this story, all excited about how amazing it is, they're like, you should read it. Like, no, I don't want to read that. I don't want to read what was going through this guy's mind as he's just sawing through his own arm. Ugh. And with my luck, I would have come up out of the canyon, there would have been like a campsite right there. Been like, hey, I thought we heard some screaming. What's going on down there? <laughs> like, my arm, you idiots! You know, like. But, but I tell you that story because the fact is when faced with death, we will do some crazy things to survive. Some things we think our mind is not capable of. Some things that our, our physical body may not be capable of. I spent two, uh, 10 years as a youth pastor, and one of the things that we would do annually is we would take teenagers down Whitewater Rapids, um, the senior hires. We stopped doing it after we had some close calls with their survival. But um, in either case, we were doing it on, a, on an annual basis, and it was always a lot of fun until it wasn't. But um, this one time in particular, uh, Meredith kind of always bragged about never falling in. And, uh, and really, the reality is if you ever go whitewater rafting, if you keep rowing, you'll stay in. It seems counterintuitive, but if you keep rowing, uh, the waves hit you, you keep moving, and you just you stay in. And, of course, she's the quintessential rule follower. So, like, waves are crashing over us, and she's like, boom, boom. You know, bodies flying to and fro. And she's like, I'm just going to keep on rowing, you know. And uh, so this, this one time, uh, it's called the boiler maker. It's a part where the boat just, just gets crushed, and uh, bodies just start shrooning everywhere. They're flying around. The carnage is crazy. Uh, in fact, it was one of those moments, because I had typically stayed in fairly well as, as well, but um, at this one moment, we turned around, and uh, the guide is gone. Now, if you've ever been on a whitewater raft, <laughs> and the guide is gone, you're like, oh, no. Like, what? Like, he's the dude that throws the rope to us. Like, what is happening? You know, and he's gone. And so the boat is kind of just spinning out of control. And we hit the next rapid. And Meredith's still like, boo da doo doo la di da And uh, she falls out in the midst of this huge crush wave. She falls out. And uh, we all get in. Our, our raft was actually completely empty. We, we're all trying to get back in, the guide included. And I'm giving her a hard time immediately. Like, oh, you must have stopped rowing. She's like, I don't know what happened. I was like, yeah, right. She's like, no, I'm not kidding. I don't even, I didn't do, like something pulled me out. I was like, nothing pulled you out. I was like, that is the creepiest, lamest excuse I've ever heard in my life. You know, I was going along. The guide fell out. But I would have stayed in if the Loch Ness Monster didn't pull me in. You know, like. What pulled you in? So one of the things that happens at the end, if you've ever been whitewater rafting, is you go into this area where you take your life preservers off and um, you look at this big wall where they try to sell you all the pictures they took of the carnage that happened during your trip. You know, they're the worst pictures ever. You're like, ah, they're like, click, click, click. You're like, no, God. Like, you know, like uh, only 10 bucks, it can be yours. You're like, really? Um, and so there, there's this wall of pictures. And, uh, and sure enough, that's where we see the evidence actually owned this picture and tried to find it. Um, but there's this 
picture where we're falling out and everything, everything, the water's hitting and there is a teenage boy who ended up going into the Marines, I believe, it was at least the Army, right? Somewhere in the military and served our country. A very brave young man who when faced with falling into the rapids, you can see he's grabbing Meredith's oar and literally pulling her in. And she's leaning back like this, holding on. And, she, and he literally pulled her in. And so we all turn around like, dude, what? And he's like, I don't think I did that. I was like, it's a picture right there. He's like, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have thrown the girl into the water to save myself. I'm like, oh, but you did, right? And so again, like, Faced with death or our, our assumption of death, fear of the potential of losing our life, it, do, it doesn't only get us to a place where we do something absurd to ourselves. All bets are off. We do absurd things to others. Like, we'll just do anything to try to survive. For what? What is it that we're trying to survive for? And that's the crux of the question I want you to contemplate this morning. I want to ask you the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? And maybe you have an easy and polite answer. Uh, maybe it's like, well, I'm, I'm living for family, or I'm, I'm living to be a good person. Or maybe because you read verse 21, you're like, uh, for me, uh, to live is Christ, and uh, to die is gain. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> so I don't know if you have the right answer uh, this morning, but... Paul, when, when he talks about this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I'm not confident that it was an indicator of his internal process. I want to submit to you this morning that, in fact, this was a declaration that Paul probably made often in and through his life. I know that it's a declaration that I make. It's my favorite verse in the Bible, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And I think it's because it's just so concise. Like, if you can, if you can get a snapshot of this, that, that living is for Christ, and that even death is gain, it kind of centers your heart. And so I find myself kind of saying this from time to time throughout my life to, to center myself. And I, I think Paul is saying it to, to center himself and to also center the church in Philippi, to say, listen, Life itself, if not for Christ, may not be worth living. But if I die, I'll be with Christ. And so I want to ask you, what is it that you're really living for? Because the truth of the matter is we all live for other things. We all live for other things. As much as you might have a right answer or a good answer this morning, more often than not, we live for other things. And so there's something written in your notes. And uh, if you don't have you version or if you're just following along, if you're taking physical notes, I want you to write something down. I want you to write, for me, comma, living is, colon. For me, living is what? For you this morning, what is living really about? Are you living for success in business? Are you living for uh, beauty? Are you living for family? Are you living for strength? Are you living for a happy marriage? Right? Are you giving your life for a happy marriage? Are, are, are you living for popularity? Are you living for food? 
I know that there's, there's moments where I am. Are you living for comfort? Are you living for entertainment? Physical pleasure? More money? What? What is it that you're really living for? This is not just a, an exercise for Christians, right? It, it's something that everybody in the world can engage with because we're all living for something. We as humans live for something. We all assign worth and value to something. And we're all guilty of worshiping something on this plane, something created. Once you have that thing, and maybe I know that we have all different types of people in the room and you're going to process information differently. So maybe you just have that blank and you're like, I don't even know. I'm living for something because I know I am. So whether you process this alone in the quietness of your uh, home later or if you're processing it right now, I want you to stay with that same logic. And I want you to finish this sentence. And I, I didn't put it in the notes because I want it to be something that really serves as an illustration. If you're living for whatever that might be, the next question I, I want you to contemplate, or the next thought, is dying is blank. Because once you know what you're living for, you understand what it is that will bring you death and despair. You see, if you're living for popularity, then dying is being unpopular. If you're living for success, then, then dying is losing your job, not having pleasure, being uncomfortable, controlling your appetite. The list goes on. You see, it's the converse of whatever it is you're living for. And we don't often think that. We don't often think that something good, like I live for a healthy marriage, can, can then turn into something destructive when we say, well, what happens then when my marriage is not going well? That's why we often feel ourselves coming undone. You see, when we set out to worship the created instead of the creator, we settle for a lesser version of our one and only life. Think about that for a second. Think about the time that you spend striving for the thing you're living for, the energy that you expend, the, the, um, the worth that you assign to that thing when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. I want you to, to consider that because what often happens when you spend that much time and energy striving for that promotion for example, and you strive and you strive and you strive and you want it so bad, then when you don't get it, it comes with not only despair, but also regret. What are the other things that you bypassed? What are the other things that you minimized in attempting to live for this? When we live for parenting, how all of a sudden our marriage pays the consequences of that. When, when we live for whatever it might be, the other things that start to take a back seat. You see, when you live for temporal things, you're in danger of wasting your life. When you're living for these things, you're in danger of literally wasting your life. You wake up one day and you're retired. Your business goes out of business. They get bought out. They lay everybody off. You think, man, all the years I sacrificed family and I sacrificed all these vacations and whatever, just striving for something and now my business is no more. What did I do? What did I live for? So what do you do? You just tell yourself that other stuff doesn't matter? In case, you've, uh, in case you haven't tried it, um, that will never work. It's never going to work because we're born with this blessing that we often turn into a curse. 
And it's this. We're born with the desire to worship. We're created to assign worth to something outside of ourselves. And we turn it into a curse oftentimes. Um, The question is not if you will worship something. It's what are you worshiping? We all worship. And, And worship has become like a churchy word. It's turned into something that you only hear inside of services or something like that. But, but worship is assigning worth to something else. And you do it. We all do it. Whether you're a Christ follower or whether you're uh, considering becoming a Christ follower or whether you're opposed to the existence of God at all, you assign worth to something. I'll prove it to you. Go to a sporting game. Go to any sporting event. Basketball, hockey, football. It doesn't matter. Go to it and watch people Worship the created. Worship. I mean, they'll wear ridiculous outfits. It's amazing how self-conscious we can be in society and even about our faith and how that's a private thing. But if you're a Yankee fan, though, hey, you bleepity bleep. I can't believe you're wearing a different shirt than I am. What? Seriously? Like, this is where we draw the line on morality? It's because I am rooting for a different group of people wearing the same clothing? Like... Wow. And the players aren't even that committed, right? They get a paycheck from another team and they just change their shirt like lightning. You know, and they're like, yep, so now I'm over here. (laughs) Like, no, but you were my everything. I was living for you. Like, hey, dude, sorry. It's weird. It's kind of creepy that you worship me. But I'm uh, I'm more into the money, so I'm going to go to this team. So, it doesn't, it's not just isolated to that. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I, that's why I don't believe in sports. I just don't watch it. I don't understand. I don't care. It goes beyond that. Go to any concert. You go to any concert and they legit worship like church style. Like, so the people that are completely uh, opposed to church, like, I don't know, it's kind of creepy. You sing and you raise your hands. I'm like, you ever been to a concert? You're like, like a lighter, you know, <laughs> or if you're super cool now, you got like a phone with a lighter app on it. Like, uh, like you will just stand there. You'll just worship. Like people worship. They're like crying, right? When the person comes out and stage, like, oh my gosh. You're like, seriously, that's a dude just up there singing. Like, I love him. You know, we worship. We worship something. Politics. You name, I mean, Anytime there's an election coming up, you just got to be careful about what you say because the way they assign worth, if, if you're wrapped up in that world, it's amazing how people will worship this plane. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if the Yankees never win another World Series in our lives. Lord, let it be. Go Orioles. But uh, <laughs> the, the thing no one said ever. Uh, but... The fact is, if, if that never happened, does it really affect the things that ultimately matter in this world? It's a perspective, right? It's an adjustment. In fact, if we're not careful, those of us that are Christians, those of us that are Christ followers in the room, we can worship worship. Did you catch that? Like, you can worship worship. The idea of coming into a place and singing. You can worship the feelings associated with that. That's why the creative team is so intentional with their songs. 
We want to make sure that our worship is directed to God and not to our feelings. That we don't come to a place and get so caught up in the emotion and the, the feeling of the room that we start worshiping worship. Where, where we come into a place and we engage in song and we don't change at all. We leave that place as if it is another concert that we've attended. What are you worshiping? What are you living for? So Paul makes this declaration that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he, he goes on and he talks in verses 22 through 26. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. And it's interesting, uh, he's in a Roman prison. There's a possibility uh, that he could be executed. In fact, ultimately, he does get executed while in a Roman prison. We know from uh, history and the context of when he wrote this that he actually gets set free. And so there's something that, that he's talking about here um, that, that's beneath the surface, and I'm going to talk about it. He goes on, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. It's far better to be in the presence of God, obviously. And he goes on, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And some of what he might be alluding to here is actually very palatable. Um, there are people in Philippi that, um, that are Roman citizens. And if they're a Philippian citizen, uh, there's a possibility that they're also a Roman citizen because of it being a Roman colony. And so there are some people that are prominent. The most prominent people in the church in Philippi are actually Roman citizens. And so there's, there's something here that Paul might be alluding to in the sense that he might be saying, hey, I'm about to, to make history here. I'm the first Christian who is a Roman citizen that's about to go on trial for being a Christ follower. And so it's probably better that I live. Because if I die, I just set a precedent. And you guys are in trouble. <laughs> so he's, he's talking about something really political also here in the sense that the, the church in Philippi is kind of leaning in like, yeah, his release has consequences and his death has consequences on our lives. Verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, Paul makes this declaration and acknowledges that his life is potentially fleeting in the sense that from the moment you are born, you start to die. <laughs> Praise God. Welcome to church. Aren't you glad you came to Centerway? <laughs> That's the reality, right? Like, we get older, but we're really, from our moment of birth, we're moving towards death. And if you're living for whatever it is that, that you want to accomplish in your life, it's like this big in the larger continuum of entire eternity. We live for this. To what end? What is the impact of the life you're living? And so he's saying, listen, my life is fleeting. And so I've decided yet again to glorify God with my one and only life, even if it means laying it down. And so I want to submit to you that Paul is giving us a roadmap. He's giving us a roadmap to living life to the fullest. So uh, one of the, the contents of contentment, one of them is the fullness of life. If we really want contentment, if we want peace and ease, we want to live life to the fullest. And so in verse 21, 
he spoke the gospel to himself. Verses 22 through 23, he allows that gospel truth to prioritize his heart and his mind. That's what he's doing. He's talking about the priorities that he's wrestling with, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to stay with you. Verses 24 through 26, he comes to the conclusion that he wants to live on mission for others. And so I think he's giving us a roadmap to life to the fullest. And everyone we interact with say, hey, listen, life to the fullest is get as many toys as you can before you go. Or life to the fullest is have a happy family. Or life to the fullest is, and the list goes on, right? The list goes on. Whatever it is that you may be living for may be something that you've bought into is the potential of saying, well, if I do that, then I'll have life to the fullest. But if you want contentment, if you want living life to the fullest, the first thing that you have to do is learn to speak the gospel to yourself. Learn to get to a place where you can center your heart. Get to the place where you can say, listen, Jesus lived the life I could not. He died the death that I deserve. And because of his resurrection, I'm now free. I'm a child of the living God. Now, does it mean that you have to say that paragraph every time? I don't think so. I think it's more about understanding the implications of that reality. Understanding the implications of the reality and allowing it to start to prioritize your heart and your mind. So it looks probably more something like this. Asking the question, why? Why? When was the last time you got to the root of the issue of what you're living for and asked the why question? Uh, I'm a certified, I have certifications in coaching, in business coaching and leadership coaching and all that. And uh, the, the only question you're told not to ask ever is why? Because it's inherently offensive, right? You can say like, oh, how are you doing that? Oh, what are you doing? All of those things are like engaging. But when you're like, why are you doing that? It's like, mind your own business. I do it because I do it, you know? And so why is an inherent, like, almost offensive. Like, what, why? What, what do you mean, why? Like, none of your business, or you get defensive. And so as a result, we're really not wired to ask the why questions for ourselves because it's painful, because it pulls some layers back. But I want to challenge you to ask some why questions. Because oftentimes when you ask the why, it's starting to reveal the heart condition, the heart idol that is beneath kind of the reality of the way you function. So why is God not enough for me to the point where I have to seek comfort in other things? Right? Why is it that I don't understand how much God loves me to the point where I have to seek the love and acceptance of others. You see the why. It starts to pull kind of some, some ugly layers back pretty quick. And it starts to lay bare like, oh, right. Why is it that I want that new car so bad? Why is it that status matters so much to me? Is it possible that it's because I don't know who I am as a child of God? And I'm trying to prove how much worth I have to others? Why? What are you living for? 
that's speaking the gospel to yourself. That's starting to pull the layers back to say, all right, God, let's, let's get messy here. Let's get to the root of the why. And I want to submit to you this morning that part of the reason why the people that, that we interact with in our day-to-day world that say, oh, Christians are a joke or that, you know, they, they act just like everyone else is because more often than not, we are the same. More often than not, we're striving just as much as they are, and we're trying to prove just as much as they are because we haven't gotten to a place where we can say, listen, what I'm living for is Christ. And because I'm living for Christ, it's reoriented my everything. And so now this this simply doesn't matter. It's become strangely dim. You see, when we get to a place that we've allowed the prioritizing and the reprioritizing of our heart and a mind, the outflow of that, is living on mission, which should impact every relationship. And that's what Paul is modeling here. He's saying, listen, I speak the gospel to myself. It reprioritizes everything. And as a result, I want to be here for your sake. I want to serve you. And so I want to ask you this morning, if the text requires something from every person in this room, I believe our application is how does living for Christ impact your relationships? How does living for Christ impact your relationships? And I don't mean just your like personal relationship. I mean your relationship to everyone and everything. Because it's amazing how sometimes we can get everyone right. And maybe it's just because we're kind of playing the game and being like, I am a Christian. Look how impressive I am. I will be as so spiritual. People will be amazed but the way we deal with things is still broken. The, day, the way we deal with stuff, the way that stuff is elevated. So how does living for Christ impact your relationships with everyone and everything? You see, when we're changed by the gospel, our relationships are changed for the good. For the good. All of a sudden, Our marriage is not about me being right because my identity is not in winning this. That which needed to be won has already been done for Christ. And so because he has expressed humility on my behalf, I can express humility in this situation. Instead of praying for my spouse to change, I'll pray for me to change. God, will you change me? And the list goes on in all these different environments where instead of saying, hey, God, just change my boss. If you just change my boss, that would be great. Instead, God, would you, would you change me in the way I interact with my boss? Would, would you create a, a humble heart, a, a contrite heart to the place where I don't go in to get taken advantage of, but I also don't go in to try to leverage something to get promoted. Instead, I come in with nothing to gain except to live for Christ. And so I'm going to care for this person. I'm going to go on mission. I want you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. And I want you to contemplate. I want you to contemplate the impact of this. The impact of what it is that you're living for. And for some of us, it might might mean, listen, before I can learn to, to speak the gospel to myself, I need to respond to the gospel. And so maybe you came to this place this morning, And as we're sitting here, you're saying, listen, I'm living for all these things and it adds up to nothing. I strive and strive and strive and for what? And if you've never come into relationship with Christ this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. It's just as simple as you 
throwing your hand up there and I'll say, okay, and you can put it right back down. I won't embarrass you or make you come up front or anything like that. I don't like to be embarrassed. But if that's you this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. You just lift your hand right now. I'll say, okay, you can put it right back down. All right. For others of us in this room, have you really learned to speak the gospel to yourself? Have you gotten to a place where you can ask the why and allow God to kind of dig it up in you? Are, are you clear enough in that which Christ has actually done to allow it to unearth the other things in your life? If not, we have opportunity. Maybe the, the step for you is to, to become more articulate in what you already know, but maybe it means entering into a discipling relationship with someone, saying, man, I, I want to be discipled because I need to learn how to speak the gospel to myself. For others of you this morning, have you allowed the truth of the gospel to reprioritize your life? Or do you look like everyone else that you work with, that you go to school with, that you interact with? Are you just a nicer version of the same ripped off version, your one and only life? Are you living life to the fullest? The last thing I want to ask some of you to consider, if you're sitting there and you say, listen, I know the gospel, I speak it to myself. I'm living for it. It reprioritizes my heart and mind every day. I want to ask you, how are you being missional? How are you being missional? Because that's not a, oh, I did that too. That's an everyday thing. Whether it means inviting people to this place so that they can have an encounter with Christ, or if it means giving to missions, if it means being active yourself, I'm not sure what it is, but I know that the Spirit will reveal it to you. So I want to challenge you this morning to be open to what it is that the Spirit may be speaking to you, that you would consider application of what it looks like to consider what you're living for. As we go into worship, I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we're going to stand and enter into worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to interact with you, the living God, and allow you to literally reprioritize our heart and mind. And so, God, we, we give you permission this morning. We've provided margin and space that you can just put your finger on that, that spot and say, that, that right there, that needs a change. And so, God, I pray that you do that. As we go throughout this worship service and we assign worth to you, the only one worthy of worship, as we reprioritize our heart and our mind and we center ourselves, saying we want to live for you, Christ. I pray your presence would, would be in this place and that you'd reprioritize our heart and our mind. And then we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would just stand to your feet as we go into worship this morning.